Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The violent attack on the Capitol a year ago was a jolt to the American consciousness that our revered democracy had broken. Now, with the anniversary of the attacks behind us, we want to give you a different perspective on those events. Today on Forum, we look ahead with journalist Jim Fallows to ask, where is our democracy the strongest? How do we nurture it? What's working in American government? And we'll ask him if he thinks we can dam the streams of disinformation that have corrupted our politics. He's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Jim Fallows has been a regular guest on Forum for many years now. And his journalism has been a source of good sense for even longer. Thinking about who I wanted to talk with the day after January 6th, I could think of no one better. On the major themes of that day and its aftermath, the derangement of American conservatism, Trump's unique flaunting of democratic norms, the wobbling structures of the government at every level, the failures of mainstream media, and the development of an alternative media ecosystem that's impervious to outside facts or reason— Jim Fallows has written extensively and insightfully. He's always managed to be both inside and outside Washington in ways that give him an upfront view and a useful perspective. As importantly, we've heard from our listeners a lot this week, and many of you are feeling despair and a desire for solutions to repair at least some parts of our democracy. Jim's pragmatic, problem-solving approach to his journalism fits the bill. Welcome back to Forum, Jim. Um, Alexis, thank you so much. Uh, we have been friends and colleagues for a long time. I'm delighted to have you in this new venue and couldn't be more honored than to be your guest. Oh, thanks so much, Jim. Such a lovely person forever. Um, I, you know, I think it goes without saying that in your career, you've probably never seen anything like January 6th in Washington. But what I wanted to ask about was the year after January 6th, you know, the year we've just gone through. Did it play out as you expected, given what you know about and you've seen from the political press and and both parties? It it did not in one particular way. I guess there there are three things I'll say that that didn't play out the way I, I expected. One involved dealing with the pandemic. I had assumed 
that the um, vaccination resistance would be like what we've seen in response to vaccination mandates. That is when airlines and most um, public agencies have applied vaccination mandates, there was a lot of uh, protests saying, oh no, we'll never do this. And in the end, 99% people of the people anyway. signed up. And I thought that would be the case with vaccination in general. Once people saw the patterns of death and hospitalization, the anti-vaxxer movement would sort of go away. That obviously uh, did not happen. Um, so that, that that's one uh, sobering fact. A second more positive fact is the economy has recovered far more rapidly and broadly than I think anybody expected a year ago. The fact that there are help wanted signs simply everywhere in the country is something that that two years ago or, or, or a dozen years ago during the, the previous crashes you would not have expected. So that is uh, not obviously a perfect improvement for everyone, but something better than most people thought uh, a year ago. And then third, finally, there's the fact that the Republican Party failed an existential test of fitness for democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, you recall that when Trump was running for the nomination, many Democrats from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio to many others denounced him as a fraud and a corruption on the party. They all lined up behind him. On the day of January 6th, many Republican uh, leaders, including Kevin McCarthy from our mutual home state of California, mutual his, yours and mine, yeah. uh, was saying, you know, this is an outrage, but of course he has sort of knuckled under. So the fact that the Republican Party has chosen Trump over Lincoln is um, something I had not dared um, foresee a year ago. You know, January 6th, of course, is like the acute moment, but it's part of a larger plan and set of structures that, as you write, add up to a shift from protecting minority rights, which a diverse society should and must do, still quoting you, to enabling minority rule. I mean, this is all kind of part of a larger set of ideas that are now in motion, particularly on, in conservative circles, that it's kind of OK to not win elections but still be in power. And I think what scares me the most about that is all the intellectual scaffolding that will have to be built to make it seem that that's the right way to govern America. Um, how are you thinking about that shift to enabling minority rule and how that could be stopped? That's a crucial point. Thanks for raising that. And just as a little bit of background for, for anybody who hasn't been, <laughs> been pouring through your and my discussions of this over the, the, the decades or over the years, that of course, the U.S. has always been a divided and fractious uh, and diverse country. It was at the beginning, it was mainly the division between the North and the South, the slave owning and the, the non-slave states and the larger states and the smaller states. And there are all kinds of compromises that were built into the Constitution to protect the rights of certain minorities. And crucially, there was the deal that allowed two senators for every state, large and small. And people in California have heard about that ad nauseum in the last decade when people in Wyoming who have 170th the population of California have the same representation in the Senate, et cetera. And those here in DC where I am right now have, have no representation in the Senate or, or in the House. The, the shift has been, I think there, there have been two main sources of shift. Uh, one over the last century plus, the other, other over the last decade plus. The century plus shift is simply proportions. Again, it was the case when the Constitution was written that the most populous state, which was then Virginia, uh, whether you're counting either 
total population or just the free white population that could vote. In the least populous state, which was Delaware, there was only a 10 to 1 difference between them. So there was a kind of, uh, the, the, the founders knew what they were doing and having this bargain of uh, two senators uh, per state. And also they applied that even so, the Senate would be a strict majority vote operation, except for treaties, impeachments, and a few other very narrow uh, circumstances. So there's been this large shift in population. So we have uh, Texas, California, and uh, Florida, the three most populous states, have something like 90 million people together, some, something in that, that, that ballpark. The three least populous states, which are Wyoming, Alaska, and, uh, and Vermont, have uh, less, less than 3 million um, people uh, all put together. And those three states each have six votes in the Senate. So that is one big change. The other shift, um, not fully recognized the way the filibuster has become routinized over the last really uh, 15 years or so, since the late 2000s, when Mitch McConnell became majority minority leader and started filibustering every single thing. That had not been the norm in the previous 200 years or so. There's no filibuster in the Constitution. Together, they've given us minority rule, and undoing that uh, will be the challenge. So just to keep setting the table for the breadth of this conversation here, and it may sound strange coming out of January 6th and the wobbly structures of our democracy right now, but I wanted to ask you about your views on the strengths of American society, particularly as someone like yourself who's lived in other countries and really strives to, I think, see the United States in this kind of international comparative context. I've spent my, my wife Deb, whom whom you know, and we're all we're all good friends. Um, and I have spent about 15 years of our life living outside the U.S. We lived at the beginning of our marriage in England and in Ghana. We've lived for many years in Japan and Malaysia and China, but most recently. And I think, like most Americans who've lived overseas. I have a stronger appreciation both of the failings of the U.S., but also its robustness. I remember one time when I first was in China back in 2006 or, or the beginning of, the, of that stay, some Chinese bureaucrat was telling me, you know, you Americans and your American president, you're always whining about how many problems you have. Look, we trade America's problems for China's in one, one snap of a finger. You know, four times as many people, still a lower per capita income, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. China has bigger problems. And I think it has focused my attention on the particular assets the U.S. has. One is starting with, in my view, that, that people around the world view the United States as a possible arena for their ambitions, their genius, their dreams. California has represented that over the years, so says the United States. And the fact that this is a self-renewing society and inclusive with all the problems that we have compared with other countries, that gives the U.S. potential strength that's really hard for anybody else to, to match. The, the surprising weakness of the US, it's, it um, hits me more and more over the decades, is that we have a self-renewing society with increasingly an antiquated national government. People mm -hmm. say this is a young country, but it has one of the oldest extant governments on earth. I think the UK is one of the few that is older than, than the US constitution from the 1780s. 
And more and more, our national structure is at odds with our modern requirements. And the tension between those two things is part of the drama of the last 200 plus years of how the potential of American society comes up against some of the, uh, the, the, the constraints. Also, one other thing, if I could, um, some guy in China told me something I believe, which was that only a country with as much going for it as the US naturally has could endure a national government as sort of out of sync as ours now is, now is. Right. I mean, when you think about, say, the COVID response here in the United States, the difference between sort of our societal capacities, you know, our ability to to innovate, to create vaccines, to manufacture them, to create, you know, do actually tons of tests, as it turned out, we were able to as a country do that versus our sort of official state capacity to coordinate all of the different 50 states and to make sure that we actually had a national response. To me, it just it's a perfect encapsulation of both the strengths and also just so many of the weaknesses. Um, I, I agree. And for any listener who may not know this, um, your host, Alexis, was played a brilliant central role during this past year in following the course of testing and COVID. So, Alexis, uh, hats off to you for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. I wanted to invite our listeners into the conversation. We're talking with Jim Fallows, of course, about how to repair democracy. He was a national correspondent for The Atlantic. His most recent book is A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which got made into a pretty spectacular uh, HBO documentary. And here's what we want to hear from you. Where do you think our democracy is strongest? Maybe at the local level, maybe at the state level. And maybe tell us something that's working better now than it was 10 years ago. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or comments about our democracy to forum at kqed.org. I also wanted to note that Jim has a new Substack publication called Breaking the News. We're going to talk about that when we get back. But you should really, its if you like what you're hearing from Jim, this sensible, pragmatic, solutions-oriented approach to what's happening in our country, the Substack is called Breaking the News. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jim Fallows about the small topic of how to repair American democracy. You know, Jim, before the break, we were talking about your new publication, Breaking the News. Uh, It takes its title from your 1996 book, Breaking the News. And the subtitle of that book was How the Media Undermine American Democracy. Based on our listener calls, I think a lot of people in 2021 agree with that subtitle. But back then, what did you mean? So so that was, in retrospect, both a prophetic and a sort of a lost paradise garden of Eden, irretrievable era. (laughs) Uh, That that book came out the week before Fox News uh, began its broadcast. The Fox News channel started up. And it was when there was still at least a theoretical difference within the news media between the idea of news and entertainment – i.e. what I was what I was arguing, there are two main arguments I was making in this book. Number one was that, that if the news media continued with, with the idea of presenting public life simply as a game, you know, has Mitch McConnell outsmart, outsmarted Joe Biden and who's up and who's down and these and the things that are fascinating to, to many people who love politics, as I do, if it presented public life that way, then it would in the long run turn the public away from public life because it's just another form of competition, but less interesting than the NFL or than stock car racing or than pro wrestling or whatever. You know, it was sort of making public life into pro wrestling and driving people but with less interesting characters. Although, of course, we saw how that came full circle. Uh, The other point I was making is that why it mattered to separate news from entertainment. The purpose of entertainment is strictly to entertain. And so it's its idea, its only reason for being is to draw an audience and that news should be in the category of things like religion and school and medical care and the courts, not in being somber and austere and boring, but there's something else it does in addition just to drawing an audience. And so to the extent that news was was being judged only by what's the instant by instant audience, it was going to go down a sort of irretrievable hole, just becoming an enter- entertainment. And there's things that people need need to know uh, that that are not, you know, entertaining at, at this moment. So that those are the two arguments. <laughs> and I was unpopular in the D.C. press corps at the time, but maybe I always have been. I mean, it strikes me that in the 25 years since that book came out, it was basically what you expected, but much, much worse. Is that fair to say? Yes, it, it was because the things I thought I, I was viewing as failings of the quote normal unquote media, like the way everything is presented as political handicapping. You know, not right. is democracy a state? Is are we fighting this disease? Are people getting, people getting lots of jobs or not? But how does this look in positioning? Those things have gone on, and I would argue in in our major media, especially the New York Times, have gotten have gotten worse. And then there's been this whole other uh, universe of, of the mm-hmm. self-contained extra media world, which has always been part of American history, but has a breadth now that I think was not the case back in, in the days of the John Birch Society or the Know Nothing Party or whatever. That is, you know, the development of this self-contained world, particularly of of conservative media. One of the things in that international context that I think is so interesting is that if you look at what's happening to American conservatives, they're increasingly out of line with conservatives even in other countries on major issues like, say, climate change. 
it, it is true. And I think that, re- that um, to the best of my knowledge, the only country that has a sort of similar denialist camp has been Australia at various times over the last uh, last 10 years. The Europe, European party is not, not in this camp. And there is a sort of American conservatism of what I had known. I, I grew up in San Bernardino County in the town of Redlands, which was a conservative town then. Barry Goldwater uh, carried my, my town. And while American conservatism since the Civil War has always had its overlay on the black-white divides and inequalities of, of the country, it, it also had a sort of northern version, you know, William, well, I'll say that, that, you know, Lowell Weicker was a Republican from Connecticut. Um, the very first national magazine article I did was during the Watergate trials when I profiled a guy named Charles Wiggins, who was a Republican congressman from El Monte who was on the impeachment committee and how the evidence finally swayed him to turn against Richard Nixon. It's very hard to imagine more than one or two of those people now. For example, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsker, I guess, are the two you can think of. Mm -hmm. You know, that has a lot to do with the way that elections work in the U.S. now. I mean, back in 2013, you wrote a pretty incredible profile of our then governor, Jerry Brown. And one of the things that Bruce Kane of Stanford told you at that time was this. He said, in California, we separated winning elections from having power. When you sever the connection between political power and winning elections, you get irresponsible behavior. And it seems like that's a a part of what's happening in in addition to gerrymandering making it impossible. (laughs) You know, I mean, what winning an election means now is setting the rules such that you can't lose as opposed to getting the most votes within a fair system. Uh, that is a great point. I'd actually had forgotten that point from that profile, which I very much imagine, uh, enjoyed uh, writing. And as a side note, call out to Bruce Kane was my graduate school classmate, so I'm glad to be here. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think he's still in your listening footprint area. So greetings, Bruce, if, if you're, you're around. And I think there's a California version of this, and then there's a U.S. national version. The California version is, of course, all the reforms of the early, early 1900s that we learned about in, in school, of a referendum re- recall initiative, et, et cetera. And those were good government ideas at their time. We know all the effects they've had in California, and there have been pushback of various sorts to try to give California more governing authority. In the U.S., it's been more, at the national level, it's been more sort of straight blockage, uh, which has come, I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the role of, of the filibuster. I, I guess I, I would say two main things, starting with Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich was the seminal figure here when he became Speaker of the House in 1994, 1995, where he he determined that his success would be measured strictly by impeding Bill Clinton, the president then. And there wasn't really a Republican agenda apart from some tax measures, as there always are, but it was some, the more Clinton struggled, the better Gingrich would do and the better he thought the Republican Party would do. And that was a little different from the uh, the way that opposition party had worked, worked before that. I think that has come to its fruition with the block filibuster voting, mm-hmm. voting in the Senate over the last uh, 15 years uh, under McConnell. Gingrich and McConnell, I think, have done in national level what the sort of evil flowers of of the uh, good government reforms in California had done in the state government, the state level there. So uh, listener Ron writes in to say, I would like James to address how to move our archaic system to make it more democratic, including the states agreeing to pledge electoral votes to the candidate with the majority of votes in the presidential election as a resident of the peninsula 
with a population greater than 13 states without San Francisco and San Jose, I'm tired of inadequate representation. And I know that in recently in Breaking the News, your publication, you went through uh, the different ways that democracy could be repaired. Uh, maybe you could walk us through some of those. Yes, and I'll do do so. And, and thank, thanks for that, that question. So there are, as I've thought about it, there is one, there seems to be one immovable object in terms of making our national government a more uh, up to date. And that is simply this, the fact of two senators per state and the, the explicit clause in the constitution saying you can amend almost anything, but no state without its consent shall be denied its quote, equal suffrage in in the Senate. So you have the Wyoming, California situation, which could be balanced out by people moving around, et cetera. But Almost everything except that is subject to to some sort of adjustment. For example, when it comes to to the Electoral College, the so-called National Popular Vote uh, Coalition is a a movement of states pledging that their state's electors will go to not necessarily who carries their own state's results, but who carries most of the national popular vote. And this is something when, when en- and that this would only swing into effect when enough states to meet 270 uh, electoral votes, that the majority would, would, would do that. So that, that is one possibility. Another surprising possibility is changing the size of the House of Representatives. Uh, Few people know this, but it actually matters. When the Constitution was written, there were 65 representatives. Until the early 1900s, that went up every single census. Until Hmm. in the early 1900s, it got to 435. And the idea was that you wanted to have uh, representatives not having too huge a uh, a span of people to represent, and you wanted to have some balance among the states. And then it's been frozen for the last century plus at 435, even as the population is much larger now than it was a century ago. I don't know if it's twice as large, but it's some very significant uh, number larger. And so if there were an increase in the size of the House of Representatives, it would become harder to gerrymander that, that there it would be, uh, you know, this this there's a whole argument about why gerrymandering would be harder if you had more more representatives, and also the electoral college would be more aligned with the the population balance among states because there would be more representatives in, in more places, and the smallest states would wouldn't have the same uh, share they do. The filibuster could be outlawed tomorrow, and that would ha- have a huge effect on. Uh, our, our national well-being. Also, tomorrow or next month, um, life terms could be established for the Supreme Court. Um, mm. The Supreme Court should have 18-year fixed terms for the justices at two-year intervals. That way, every president would predictably have one appointment every two years. And you wouldn't have this hideous business of trying, you know, when, when you're yeah, buying a horse, yeah. you look at its teeth and see how old it is. You have to sort of see how old a, a nominee is to get that person confirmed for maximum shelf life. And uh, the term tontine, I often use <laughs> this horrible uh, lottery based on how long people live. So there are a number of other proposals that could be, be applied. I just thought, you know, one of the things I like best about this list before we take a, a first listener call is just this idea that everything is broken benefits only the people who are breaking the system, right? I mean, it's a, the idea that nothing can be fixed is actually very bad for people who would like to defend our democracy. And I, I love the idea that not only do we have a solution, we have actually many solutions if only we could um, begin to implement them. Um, let's bring in Mahendra from Oakland. 
Hi, my name's uh, Mahendra. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at UC Berkeley. Uh, I do a lot of research on voting, and I was interested in uh, your opinion on approval voting. Uh, approval voting is a voting system where each voter marks yes for each candidate they're willing to consent to or approve of, and whichever candidate has the highest approval vote, uh, rating wins the election. Hmm. It was adopted by Fargo and in uh, St. Louis in 2018-2020, and in St. Louis, they've seen the big success, actually, because in 2017, in their mayoral election, their winning candidate won uh, for uh, the primary for mayor, uh, won with 32 percent of the vote. Uh, and the second place candidate had 30 percent of the vote. And then in uh, 2021, when they did the mayoral race, what they found was that the second place candidate who got 30 percent won with 50 percent, 57 percent approval. Um, and uh, we, there's also data that shows with uh, the Trump uh, during the Republican primaries, Wall Street Journal, uh, NBC News poll showed that during the primaries, among Republican candidates, he never was first place among Republican voters with respect to approval ratings. In fact, during the last two months of the race uh, among the, in the primaries, uh, he was in last place among the Republican candidates by Republican voters by, uh, huh. by the approval ratings. Uh, so, so Mahendra, just to play out the the consequences of this kind of change, it would be to m- probably moderate the candidates who are available because your kind of small base that's highly activated would sort of be diluted by by other people, right? Yeah, yeah. You you avoid the spoiler effect. That's exactly what you do. Yeah. Uh, and I know they're trying to push forward in St- uh, Seattle right now in 2022, uh, I think. But I was just wondering what... Uh, yeah, uh, thanks so much. Uh, Jim, what do you think about it? Thanks so much, Mahendra. Really appreciate that. So one of the exciting things about being involved in public discourse is you always learn things. So I had not heard of this until now, and I, I, I will look it up. Um, I, I, it is part of a general experimentation in voting and election system that that can go on around the country and is going on around the country. Um, I'll recommend to all listeners a report that came out last year, now uh, now a year and a half ago, uh, you know, in 2020, from the American Academy on Arts and Sciences called Our Common Purpose. And it was um, a much more interesting commission report than most you've heard of because it was full of specific suggestions that could legally happen without constitutional changes. And included was ranked choice voting, which is similar. Uh, to to the approval voting, it sounds like, in the sense that you don't want to avoid the the fratricide or spoiler effect. And it was implemented in Maine after a couple of um, gubernatorial elections there, where the person who was the sort of Trump counterpart in Maine uh, was running against two figures who were each more popular than this person, but who sort of knocked the, each other off. Uh, the, the Trump figure, Paula Page, became governor, and that they now have ranked choice voting there. It's possible you could have multi-member congressional districts. That's been uh, the the report goes into that. So I think anything that is an experiment to have our electoral results be a better result, a better reflection of the real will of the public I'd be for. So I, I've written this down to look up after we're done talking. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of some of the thanks again for that question, Mahendra. Uh, this seems like part of your overall sort of mission in journalism is to go out and find where where Americans are already doing these kinds of experiments with our democracy and then kind of uplift those, uh, the ones that seem to be working. Here's the the sort of the master plan, actually, as you and I have discussed before for the reporting Devin and I have been doing now for, for almost a decade. It is if the problems, the premise is that the problems of our era right now 
are very similar in their contours to the problems of the first Gilded Age in the late 1800s of huge increases in wealth, huge dislocations by technology, huge changes in occupation and corrupt government and blah, blah, blah. And out of that time came all sorts of reforms uh, from dispersed local levels around the country in the labor movement and the good government movement and the women's movement and the black rights movement and on through a whole panoply of things that were applied in the early 20th century. Our premise has been those kinds of reforms are actually taking place all around the country. And I think a moment when this became vivid to us was, was after Deb and I had spent a long time first in Greenville, South Carolina, very conservative place, home of Trey Gowdy, then in Burlington, Vermont, very progressive place, home of Bernie Sanders. And we said, if you didn't know that these places were opposites on the national spectrum, you would think they were the same town that the mayors were similar, the businesses worked with civic groups, worked with churches, worked with all sorts of things in similar ways. And so there is this kind of unrecognized diaspora of lots of ideas taking form about career technical education, about sustainability, and about drug treatment programs. So giving some, some face and voice to things that are experimental and possibly successful as part of our mission. I mean, it seems like right now so many... Uh, issues actually do unite so many Americans, but things that are seen as national political issues are just wildly polarized. And the second something enters that sphere, it's like it acquires this toxic cast, which then makes it impossible to move forward on it, which actually means it's very complicated to try to take some of these local reforms to the national level, right? Because they may enter that toxic sphere. It is exactly. I'm glad you used the word toxic because I often think of this as national level political poison seeping down and and it's had damaging effect in many state governments and a few, although not not as many um, local governments. I'll give you this example, uh, Alexis, from our our journalistic colleagues that um, in traveling around the country in basically every every state or all 48 of the, of the mainland states in, in our little airplane, Deb and I would never, ever, ever start asking somebody, what do you think about Obama? What do you think about Hillary Clinton? What do you think about Donald Trump? Because if you do that, it's just like turning on cable news. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them, are young people moving away or moving back? How are the schools doing here? What about these parks? Are the libraries expanding their capacities? It's not trivial responses you get. It's actually interesting ones, and they, they do converge, you know, in, in uh, liberal and, and conservative communities. We're talking with journalist Jim Fallows about Prepare Our Democracy. He's contributing writer for The Atlantic's most recent book with his wife, Deb Fallows, is The 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which is also uh, our town's 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which is also an HBO documentary. His newsletter is called Breaking the News. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with journalist Jim Fowles about how to repair our democracy. His most recent book is Our Town's 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America. And his newsletter is called Breaking the News. Lots of you are getting in touch, and we do want to hear from you. Where's our democracy the strongest? And tell us something that's working better now than it was 10 years ago. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email's forum at kqed.org. Let's bring in Don from El Cerrito. Welcome to the show, Don. Wow, your show is great, but uh, I just realized when you put a died, um, no wonder I had a problem waking up this morning. Oh, um, I know, yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway... We won't go. In, we won't go there. But thank you for your program. It's quite perceptive. Thank um, you. Don. Uh, thank you. That. But my comment is, we have to go back to the origin, sixteen nineteen or whatever the whenever the first black uh, mm-hmm. person was brought here. Uh, it, it the black person was not brought here for any democracy. Mm-hmm. The black person was brought here for the sole purpose of labor, uh, to be used as a uh, a tool. So. Um, my my hypothesis, my thesis is that the that first black person here landed on the shores of America in that slave ship is the Native American. There was no other concept of America until that black person arrived on the shores of America. Okay, because if the nations, the peoples that were here, the indigenous people were here, so-called indigenous people were not united and they did not consider themselves Americans. Okay, as far as world, let me let me wrap it up because it's, it's too big. But thank you uh, for the author uh, with his ideas. But I think we need a parallel uh, conversation along with his ideas because his ideas are great, but there are parallel ideas that need to be also forthcoming. Yeah. So my idea is this. My sure. idea is this. Uh, originally, the black black people had to do world building. They so they created the news, the entertainment. And the their spiritual, emotional, and physical um, being, cultural, whatever you want to call it, they created their own ecosystem from the origin, from the beginning. Out of the blue, they created the blues, twelve bars, uh, an entire musical universe, cognitive, conceptual universe, artistic, beautiful universe that's still being worked out today. Uh, that's the purpose of that uh, that influences the world, and that's all I have to say. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Don. I mean, and, you know, in our realm, the tradition of the black newspapers going way back is, you know, a a really vital and actually quite interesting and uh, hopeful tradition, given how broken the mainstream media has been in different ways through time. So um, maybe the, the question to kind of pose to you, Jim, out of that is what we know that at the heart and at the center of many of the fractures of American society, there is white racial grievance about what's becoming a multiracial democracy. Over this whole week, as we've had these programs 
as we've read, you know, our colleagues at The Atlantic, Bart Gelman's piece about what's motivating the people who were on January, that went on January 6th, a lot of it comes down to anti-blackness, anti-multiracial democracy, and a hope for, uh, to hold on to a, a white America. So one of my questions has been throughout all of this, and I've asked it several times on the air, is how do we address white racial grievance while also advancing, you know, equity for uh, people of color? This is the central axis of American history. I, I, I would say that the, you know, the, the, the status of black people has been the, cent- the central injustice in American history since since the founding, as as and before the founding, as as, as Don was saying, and the tensions involving that were part of the the structure of the Constitution. They were the basis of the greatest trauma in American life, the Civil War. They've been the default line on which politics has been uh, aligned ever ever since then. So I agree with with the caller, Don, that this is the basic uh, challenge of, of American life. And you can see in almost any episode of American history, the tension between trying to have people's attention being on economic issues of opportunity and class and and fairness and inclusion and extremes versus simple tribal issues of resentment and fear and hatred. And when I was in college studying American history, the the, the uh, story of Tom Watson, the uh, Southern populist who tried to unite black and white Southerners together against the white uh, sort of uh, upper class and ended up being a an anti-black agitator himself. That was sort of a tragic illustration of what has happened often in our politics. So I think this is the ongoing uh, challenge. Uh, and I, I don't know any other way than to address it frontally and directly, that our strength is the diversity of our society. That is also our challenge and just talking plainly about these things and seeing how we can address them as opposed to papering them over is, mm-hmm. is uh, that's my answer for the moment. And I think Don also had a great answer in the sense of black institutions themselves have uh, just had a tremendous impact on American society and, and black culture, obviously. Um, Gregory writes with a, with a, a challenge, uh, Jim. The problem is not that there is a lack of solutions, uh, Gregory writes, to our problem, but every solution depends on enacting them. And the Republicans have nothing to gain from that because they are a minority white party trying to hold on to power. And everyone of foul solutions or anybody's will work to diminish Republican power. They do not want a legitimate democracy. They inevitably lose in a fair system. They will fight to the death. Every one of these solutions. That's the logic of the situation. At the national level. It does seem that the block of Republicans, both in the Senate and the House, uh, they they in they have opposed just in principle almost everything that uh, that the Biden administration has proposed, and before that the Obama administration. Even when the benefits would, even when if these measures go through, then the Republican congressmen or senators are taking credit for them, saying, "Oh, we're going to have this new airport, we're going to have this new broadband bill, et cetera, et cetera." Uh, so. That is, I, I agree that Gregory, if it is the the uh, listener is writing in that this is a dynamic to work against, and it is why the task of political leadership is hard, 
and why, in their different ways, Franklin Roosevelt and uh, and Lyndon Johnson and Obama and Biden have had to fight to get things done uh, on on these these issues. Um, I'll even mention my one-time employer, Jimmy Carter, who <laughs> the last Democrat to carry many many southern southern states. So I think that that part of the there's less of that zero sumness mostly at the local level and and at a number of states too where people recognize that having a having a, a broadband project or having a, a hospital project or having a library project or having new new vocational schools will help most people and so they're willing to support it so i agree with gregory's description of the challenge and this is uh the the struggle for small d democratic leaders and media and the rest of us to say, how can we, um, as our predecessors over the last centuries have done, how can we move more ahead than than behind? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a couple of calls back to back here on media. Uh, David from Oakland, you're up first. Yeah. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, but returning to this idea about Fox News, what is to be done about Fox News? I mean, why is it allowed to call itself news when it's broadcasting just lie after lie? I sometimes turn it on just to see what what is on there. I turn on the other day and I see the Department of Justice labels protesting parents domestic terrorists. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it it, it has had to refer to itself, I think, as entertainment, right, with the FCC or something, so it can get around all accountability. Why can it then call itself Fox News? I mean, if it says that, you know, a broadcast entity says that the idea of an attack on the Capitol is really nothing at all. How is that not seditious? What, what are the limits of freedom of the press and what mechanisms are there right now or what could we create to stop the destruction of democracy? Yeah. Thank you for that, David. Let's go uh, take one more back-to-back with uh, Marianne in Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Good morning. Thank you. I wanted to quickly say I am an independent voter, and I am a legal immigrant that I came here. And I've read the Constitution very deeply, and I actually teach it. And I think it's a beautiful document, and that's one of the reasons that everybody in the world. If you ask them, where do you want to go? They say, I want to go to America. I think it's because of that foundation. And and I think when some people come here, you know, in the, in colleges and, the, you know, they just want to change it. Uh, I think that's, it's going to be a disaster. I think the constitution, it's very uh, strong. And in regards to the media, actually, what I, the point I wanted to make is that the media in the United States, as I have been in other countries and I've seen many other ones, the media is very biased. And I, I don't see even Fox to be uh, on the right side. Fox is a controlled uh, right, but it's not telling us the truth. And I listen to some alternative news sometimes. They are very embracing every kind of people. And what I see on mainstream media is only one-sided representation of the Democrats. And when I find out, for example, with elections, there is absolutely no information on what really happened. It shows that it is totally biased, and it doesn't tell the truth to people. I see that stuffing of the ballot boxes has happened in 2020, but there is a video of it is there. But nobody hears about it. Well, man, I, I want to, you know, at least... My read of the research on a lot of these allegations of voting fraud is that under scrutiny, 
almost all of them have have come up with to be nothing. Um, and I think that's it is actually tough to to when to address some of these issues head on because so that that alternative ecosystem is constantly throwing up this uh, stream of things which have to be debunked um, by by regular journalists. Um, Jim Files, I want to ask you on the on the sort of broader set of questions though about our media and our, our the landscape that we have. In particular, Fox News, but also there's all the things to the right of Fox News as well as, you know, talk radio. And then on the left, there's not really a a sort of comparable mechanism, but there is a sort of broadly liberal mainstream media, like broadly in the liberal in the sense of believes in democracy and and a lot of the institutions of the United States. What do you what do you make of the of the path forward, given that? The media in most places, particularly newspapers, has been in in free fall. Yes, and and we, we can discuss some other time the 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 fundamental mistake that many people in our business made uh, a decade ago in thinking that news should be free and, and that 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 uh, which had not been the model uh, in in you know in the previous previous century. I think the. There are conceptually two challenges for the news ecosystem. There's not anything to be done to or about Fox News. The only reason there could be a fairness doctrine or those kinds of restrictions on broadcast in the old days is that it was broadcast over government-controlled channels, since the government could set standards. And cable is not everything else. And the First Amendment, you know, cable can can carry it. I think the the two parallel challenges I would suggest is for the mainstream news to recognize that to get out of the covering politics business and more into governance and life that the the generally this is the same point i was making in my book breaking the news that that presenting politics as a game eventually makes us all losers mm-hmm. and rather uh, portraying the life in which we all live public public life um, I wanted, to, and then there's the particular issue of local news, and I, I, I'll call out a number of organizations. There's a local news alliance. There's the uh, Report for America group of recognizing there's a particular challenge challenge in the local news ecosystem, with whole panoply of pos- potential uh, solutions, which are not very expensive. But I think uh, that's a particular. Uh, if local the local news ecosystem were saner, uh, then I think a lot of these other problems would be easier to address. You know, we asked uh, listeners about what was better, what works now, and just going to run through some of these comments, and then you can sort of reflect on what they say about the strengths of America. Sprague writes, one thing that is working better today in the United States than 10 years ago is healthcare. The ACA made great strides in creating a more equitable healthcare system, although we still have a ways to go. Justin writes, the strongest elements of our democracy are likely the ones that value the supremacy of truth-telling, for example, through the justice system or through our various academic pursuits that have excelled over the years. The devaluing of truthfulness is the greatest and most dangerous corruption of healthy values by politically and financially motivated actors. And writes on Instagram, I think the strength in America is in the people who believe in the past ideals. The weakness is definitely in the election funding. Without reforming and removing big money, guaranteeing one vote to one citizen, we will never right the ship. And Banu writes, America's strength is a strong federal system, uh, which uh, the the executive branch, which is an interesting uh, question. Um, So what do you think, Jim? Just reflecting on those, or you can just add your own, too, if you want to take it in a different direction. 
Th- those are fascinating, uh, generally big picture ones, which I'm, I'm really glad, glad to hear. Two specific things that we've, Deb and I have written about a lot are the um, the adjustment of American education to strengthen community colleges, career technical schools, uh, preparing people who need opportunity for the opportunities this moment is creating. I think that's come a long way compared, compared to, to, to 10 years ago. I think there's a lot of local level sustainability efforts that you wouldn't have seen a decade ago of making um, parks and trails and bike paths and all the rest, which sound like nothing, but actually they make a big difference in how people think about their communities, how they can interact with with, with their, their neighbors and experimentation in local media. Um, there, there have many established organizations have cratered in the last 10 years, but new ones are growing up too. So I will reflect upon some of the ideas that you're start including the crucial one of healthcare that your listeners have come in with. Last question here as we get to the end of the hour. I do want to talk about 2024. Um, I, I honestly can, can't even really frame the question. Just tell me what you think people should be doing to prepare for that time, given the terrifying reporting that we've heard from Atlanta colleagues like Bart Gelman, uh, uh, George Packer, and others about sort of what may happen to re- basically make it a, an undemocratic uh, contest. I, I think that we need. I, I think that especially Bart Gelman's piece was was really important and spread it, showing a turning a spotlight on here are things happening right now to make it impossible to count the votes or to have to allow legislators to ignore the vote. So all I can uh, suggest is more media, more attention, more discussion, more uh, more emphasis because the system. So yes. More stories, more discussion, and pay attention. <laughs> I mean, the, the question that I'm asking people is, let's say it goes down as Bart Gelman has described, in which it basically becomes a, Democrats, a, a Democratic leader wins the vote uh, and Republicans deny that and do something else. What is the answer then for the country? I don't know and don't have you asked Bart Gelman that question? Who, I did. who has an answer to that? <laughs> and what did he say? I, no, no, no one has an answer to it. I think it's so far outside of like the norms and it it is just, you know, it, no one has anything. And I'll, the only thing I'll say semi-consoling is that my experience of America through my long life and my knowledge of America through reading its long history is the country has always been in trouble. And this is a particular kind of trouble we're dealing with now. But um, but our our predecessors have dealt with troubles and we need to um, model their, their stalwartness. Thank you for that perspective, Jim. I needed that. We have been talking with journalist Jim Fallows about how to repair our democracy. His most recent book, with his wife Deb Fallows, is Our Towns, 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, which is also an HBO documentary. And his newsletter is called Breaking the News. Thanks so much for joining us. Alexis, thank you. It's an honor. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.